Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And I wanted to remind you that uh, recent episodes of Expanding Mind are available uh, through calling in to PRN at 1-701-719-0890. And uh, that'll get you some recent episodes. And of course, the archive is on prn.fm as well as my own uh, website, technosis.com, T-E-C-H-G-N-O. SIS.com. As folks who have been listening to the show for a while uh, know, um, I like to play in the tension in the space between uh, psychology and spirituality, between uh, uh, materialism in the broadest sense of the term as affirming our, our natural existence and the history of this planet and the cosmos we're in, along with some of the more uh, profound possibilities suggested in uh, mystical and spiritual traditions. So as somebody who's interested in this tension, uh, both personally and uh, intellectually, between psychology and spirituality, I've long been uh, fascinated by the diamond approach, um, which to my mind is is uh, one of the most um, holistic and balanced and grounded uh, approaches, modern approaches, contemporary approaches uh, to spirituality that, that I'm aware of. And one of its strengths is that uh, it uh, engages issues of depth psychology, uh, not just uh, Freudian mystical archetypes, but, uh, you know, the good old down and dirty uh, Freudian issues of uh, uh, childhood rearing and all of the uh, various pains and gaps and holes that come from it. And has found a really wonderful way of uh, blending that with uh, some wisdom teachings uh, deriving from a number of traditions, Sufism, Buddhism, and uh, Fourth Way Gurdjieff stuff. And while I'm not a member of the school, the Ridwan school that has grown up around the Diamond Approach, I have uh, a number of good friends who are uh, deeply involved and have uh, experienced some of the approaches. And uh, the more I learn about the school, the more I'm impressed uh, with the, the man behind the curtain. Actually, he's not behind the curtain. He's quite visible. Uh, the the uh, founder of the, of the Ridwan School and the founder of the Diamond Approach, Hamid Ali, who uh, writes under the pen name A.H. Almas. So if you're looking for the books, that's uh, that's what you're looking for. Um, and, uh, I mean, he's got a very interesting background, you know, he, he came from, uh, was uh, born in Kuwait, came to Berkeley as a young man to study physics and that fact and his, uh, the, the kind of thinking and the kind of groundedness and carefulness that we associate with, uh, physics is, is very apparent in the way in which, uh, the diamond approach, uh, unfolded. Uh, and uh, the school you know, came together many, many decades ago. And one of the wonderful things about the school is, and I can say this as somebody who spent a lot of time as a uh, you know, historian studying um, new spiritual movements, new uh, groups that emerge around Eastern practices, around uh, uh, Western magic, around esotericism, around psychedelics, all of these things. I've, I've looked a lot at this stuff. And um, while the school has been going on for many, many decades now, uh, it's a, a very healthy organization, uh, and, and and by that I'm, I don't mean that they are you know uh, you know ca- you know running all the way to the bank. Uh, what I mean by that is that there's uh, 
been nary a scandal that I've heard of, and it seems like an extremely balanced, well-run institution, and they do a remarkably good job of reining in some of the inherent problems, psychological and otherwise, that seem to go along with spiritual organizations and spiritual practices, at least in the modern world. Um, and that, I think, is partly a, a, a testament to uh, Hamid's approach and um, the, the kind of groundedness that seems to be going along what is also sometimes very far out teaching. So I was very happy when I, I at the spur of the moment, thought, hey, maybe Hamid's got a new book out uh, called Alchemy of Freedom. Maybe he'll talk to me. And uh, he agreed to. So with no further ado, uh, Hamid, uh, welcome to Expanding Mind. Hello, Alec. Good to talk to you. Very good. You know, I wanted to start off uh, with the topic of uh, truth. Uh, this is a term that uh, uh, comes up a lot in your teachings. A lot of the new book is about uh, true nature, which I realize is a, is a, is a somewhat different um, category. But the reason yeah. it, it came to me um, was for a couple of other reasons, uh, or more external reasons. One is that... Uh, you know, we've reached this point in our in our political history where we, we, we some people call it the post-truth era, where the issue of truth of what does it mean for something to be true, for someone to stand up for truth, for someone to offer an alternative truth, and how do we judge between them is very visible in in, in people's minds. Ordinary people's minds are wrestling with this question as they ask the news, am I getting, is it true, and is what Trump's saying is true or whatever. So there's this kind of in- interesting focus on truth. Uh, and then at the same time, you can also look around and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, science people, a lot of, there's a very strong, strong uh, tendency in our society right now, especially among thinking people to encounter folks who are just arguing for, for scientific truth and the idea that psychological experiences or things found in ancient wisdom traditions, you know, how can that be true? Uh, and so this question of truth is really, uh, significant and difficult. And I would just love to hear you reflect on why the term, even just the word truth, remains such an important part uh, of, of your approach and how it sheds light on this larger issue of, of true nature. Well, good, good question. Well, truth in terms of spiritual teaching has always been a central thing because that's what it is, to find out the truth about what is it? What is a human being? What is reality? Uh, what is a uh, life? What is a good life? Those fundamental questions. Uh, and so spiritual work, inner work, is oriented toward finding the truth about these things and finding it and then living it, not just finding it. So for spiritual teachings, there is no such thing as post-truth error that people are talking about. Now we hear about it politically, the post-truth era, well, because, you know, the question of which, who you believe and what is true, and but that's sort of, you know, a superficial thing, really, and I think it's a passing phenomenon that's happening now. But the post-truth era is being discussed philosophically only a decade or two with the post-modern thought. You know, if you're not familiar with the postmodern thinkers like Derrida, Foucault, and all these people, they talk about truth, that there is no such thing as truth, because it's all relative. It's relative to the person, to their history, to their culture, to, uh, to the environment. That was the philosophical perspective 
which is that there isn't really a truth, there's only convention, and there's agreed upon cons- a consensus that's what makes truth. And, of course, science itself doesn't subscribe to that. In fact, you know, the postmodern philosophers made a big deal about it, but it didn't go beyond their own circles in some academic, you know, institutions. The science didn't get affected by it. The culture as a whole didn't affected by it, although it was a strong thing in the philosophical movement. And it didn't really touch spirituality in terms of people's involvement in spirituality, trying to find out what is true. Now, in the diamond approach, we look at truth as uh, multifaceted and multi-layered. Truth exists in any experience, in any uh, dimension of experience, in any spiritual illumination. So spiritual illumination is talking about truth in the sense, what is the truth of spirit? What are we truly? What is the nature of our our spiritual beingness. And that is to find that kind of truth, which is a very intimate, personal, but also finding something very universal. But the Dharma approach, we look at truth always as something, any experience, any situation has truth. In the sense, we're talking now together. Well, that is truth. You cannot say, deny it, that we're talking together. Somebody else might think about it in different terms, but from the terms we're looking at, you, Eric, and I, Hamid, are talking. Now, I'm talking, and also the truth is, what am I experiencing? That's how down approach look at it. What, is, what am I experiencing? What is the truth of my experience? Let's say I'm experiencing uh, peacefulness or openness. What is that? I mean, and that is a subjective truth. It doesn't need the confirmation of somebody else or news organization, anything else, because that is an intimate, psychological, subjective thing to you to say, what are you experiencing? What is it you're experiencing? Now, for me, I could inquire into, try to verify what I'm experiencing and whether saying it is peacefulness is true or not, or what degree of peacefulness or that. But the fact of feeling peaceful and open is an incontrovertible truth in my mind, and I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. It has nothing to do with it. So when it comes to spirituality, truth is something you experience, you find in your being, in your consciousness. And so our experience uh, gives us some truth. A lot of our experience reflect relative truth, like the postmodern people talk about. You know, some of us, what we experience, what we feel, how we act, depends a lot on our culture, depends a lot on our upbringing and our history, which we discussed about the Freudian thing and the unconscious thing. So. To find the truth means there is a manifest truth, but the manifest truth is connected with a whole world of reality, because my experience is not disconnected from my previous experiences, not connected, disconnected from the world and how it developed. All that is relevant, and you could say my truth right now is relative, but the fact is relative in the sense that 
it is me who is experiencing it, not everybody else. And my history had a lot to do with it. But openness as an experience is a truth that is a spiritual truth that has nothing to do with, with, uh, with what anybody thinks or believes. So uh, the practice in Dino Project is called inquiry, which is to find what is the truth of your experience. Because whatever experience I have, I might know something about it, I might not know everything about it. The truth means to find out not only what it is, what's happening, what is its meaning, what it's connected to, what's making it be that way, what are the factors in it. All that is discovering truth. So what, what I want really, really like about what you're saying and about the inquiry process that you've described in very, uh, in very good terms right, just right here uh, in this conversation is yeah. the way in which it makes room for, for thinking, for a certain kind of thinking. I mean, particularly experientially oriented paths, uh, just thinking more in more modern terms. You know, yeah. they, they often emphasize the need to like – uh, temporarily arrest thinking or to elude the thinking mind or to move deeper into experiences of presence or being or uh, immediate uh, non-dualistic experience or whatever. And there's often not a very good, in, uh, not, not a very interesting or, or valuable way of thinking about how to think because we're, we're going to continue to think and thinking has to be part of our spiritual path at some points probab and probably throughout the whole the whole uh, kit and caboodle. So I'd love to hear you because it, partly you you have a scientific background. There's a great deal of of intellectual subtlety to the story to the to the uh, the, the picture you present. It's not ultimately an intellectual uh, activity, inquiry, or spiritual work. But thinking plays an extremely important role. And so I I just like to hear you talk a little bit about how how thinking operates as part of a spiritual path. That's interesting. Two weeks ago, I gave a teaching for three days on th about thinking and its role in, in spiritual experiencing and practice. And one of it is to see that many methods of practice try to get away from thinking, try to silence it, slow it down, and go around it because thinking is seen as a, an impediment to direct experience. And which is true, if we're stuck in our mind, it's an impediment to knowing what we feel, what, what's arising in our field of consciousness. We're limited by the content of our thought. But that is a particular methodology. There are spiritual teachings that use thinking as part of their practice. I mean, even like in the Buddhist tradition, it has to do with you go beyond thinking. There are schools that emphasize thinking, like the Madhyamika Nagarjuna's school, which is one of the famous schools, uses logic and thinking to prove, for instance, the truth, which is emptiness. They actually prove it through logic before they go into experiencing it. So first I want to say that there are traditions who use thinking. And my approach, Thinking is part of experience. You cannot get rid of it. We have feeling, emotion, thinking, actions, recognitions, memories, all, all there. And that, all those are part of experience, and it is part of what consciousness brings up to experience, and it is what I inquire into, all of it, inquiring, including thinking. Now, thinking is an interesting thing because it is, difficult for most people to see their thought. People just think and they act out of thinking. If you do it that way, thinking can be enough. However, 
thinking can be used for uh, practice, as you mentioned, that uh, what I'm talking about includes thinking, the inquiry, but we could also inquire into thinking itself. That's what I did the teaching on. I got into thinking, what is thinking? What composes thinking? What are the elements of thinking? And try to penetrate thinking itself. Use it as a doorway into openness and into consciousness instead of seeing it as an obstacle. And it worked a great deal. It really great, worked well. I was surprised because the first time I teach it, I didn't know how people were going to respond to it. There were about three, four hundred people. Many people found it very exciting, interesting, not mentally, but experientially. And there are many kinds of realization, including non-dual realization happening through exploring thinking itself. And and does that uh, inquiry that inquiry process that uh, that could that could look at thinking, but not just fall into thinking. They could begin right. to analyze it, begin yeah. to shape it, begin to get a sense of how it works. Does that require a grounding in the body, in presence? How does one well, it will help. The more we are grounded thinking? in the body and, and in the sense of presence, the more uh, possible, more easy for us to not be swept away by thinking by the content of thinking, you know. We can either recognize thinking and what it brings up in terms of memories and uh, previous information, or we can see what is thinking. Is it uh, by thinking with words or with images or what, kinesthetic or what? So different ways of dealing with thinking. And uh, But thinking is, you know, part of our life. I mean, even fully realized enlightened people need to think to be able to live. You you talked about, um, I mean, I mean the, 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 there's such an emphasis on experience in the diamond approach and even just, you know, in this conversation so far. And again, like looking at it a little bit from the outside and seeing how, you know, experience became a very important part of spiritual, psycho-spiritual work. Uh, in recent decades, you know, it's a, it was it was seen as it's not about uh, teachings necessarily. It's not about dogma. It's not about belief. It's about the need to to have deeper kinds of experiences. But of course, people can be to use a hard term deluded, and then to use a lighter term confused or unclear about yeah. their experience. And it's certainly, if you just look at you know, I'm not looking, not talking about your school at all. I'm just sort of generally speaking across the spiritual landscape that you can very much see uh, paths that put experience at the center, but kind of lose themselves or, or spin out because there's nothing to really question or or constrain or make that process more intelligent. You can you can indulge yourself in experiences and mere experiences, confuse hedonism with insight, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we, we can talk many examples from this. So yeah. I'm wondering how right. in the diamond approach uh, and just in your in your thinking about this in general, how uh, experience itself has to on the one hand be in the center of our of our inquiry of our of our going forward and at the same time how is it constrained or filtered through a collective process or a teaching that enables it to become more intelligent or to avoid delusions or avoid inflationary thinking or other kinds of psychological issues that come up with 
intense experience? Well, first of all, confusion and delusion, stuff like that, is actually everyday kind of experience for most people. That's the usual. To actually find the truth and live it, that's the unusual. So even people involved in spiritual teaching, they can get deluded and confused, that's true. And so is people who are thinking, they can get deluded and confused. So delusion and confusion pervades consciousness in general. But the idea of spiritual illumination is to find the truth that is that is through the delusion, through the confusion, and to to see the delusion, see the confusion, understand it, and be able to go beyond it. So many teaching, just like they do with thinking, they go around, they see the delusion, the confusion, and they try to do something with it, so they go beyond it. My approach, I take the confusion, delusion on, and said, okay, let's experience that, let's look at that. First of all, am I deluded or not? If I am feeling certain states, say I'm feeling that I am pure love, is that really true, or is it something I'm imagining? Part of inquiry is to ascertain those kind of things, to see whether I am influenced by uh, forces beyond the present experience or not to verify for oneself, to ascertain whether what I'm experiencing is really true or not. And, uh, you know, the spiritual world is an immense world, so it is possible that people get to experience something and experience themselves as love or awareness, and they might be wrong. It's possible. Uh, meaning... Even what they call consciousness turns out to be is different to what the masters call consciousness. That's all possible. That's why it's possible, why it's better for me to assume always a position of both openness and humility and not to assume I have found the final truth. To continue the inquiry. Inquiry is a dynamic, continuous process. Always revealing falsehood and allowing the possibility of truth, truth that illuminates. Now, real spiritual truth, when it really arises, it has a quality of uh, dissipating darkness, showing ignorance as ignorance, and... uh, uh, and recognizing the delusion when one is deluded and be able to be free from them. That's exactly what spiritual work is really about, to be free from delusion, because our most of our experiences, we are deluded. Believing that I'm an individual, a separate, independent individual, always like that, and that's my reality. All spiritual teachings say that's a delusion, but most people believe it. So spiritual work is specifically going beyond delusion, but even in our spiritual work, we can get somewhat deluded. We, it's possible to get deluded. <laughs> I mean, the problem of delusion there, a lot of people get messianic and they believe things that are not true about themselves in reality. And if that happens, 
they get harmed themselves. It's not like only other people get harmed. They will become disconnected at some point, and their experience will become limited. That's my experience. When I'm not uh, <laughs> right on, that will limit my experience. It will dissociate me from presence. So when you get to the spiritual element itself, whether we call it presence or uh, pure awareness, it has its own sense of certainty and its, its own capacity to expose falsehood. That's what makes it uh, through nature or, or the truth of spirit, because it is an illuminating kind of reality, you know, illuminate, illuminating light. It's, in, it's in, function, uh, the alchemy of illumination. Free- in the Alchemy of Freedom, you, you have a wonderful phrase where you're talking about a true nature and how we can, you know, hear about it through teachings and maybe witness it in a, in a, in a, a teacher or someone who has, you know, achie- achieved spiritual re- uh, insight, realization. Uh, yeah. But you have this phrase, the, the encounter of the third kind with true yeah. nature. When, when I read that line, I was like, wait a second, that's from, that's from science fiction. That's from ufology. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to I wanted to hear you talk about one th- this idea of encounter of the third kind, but I'm also interested in why you used the uh, the science fictional uh, metaphor. If there was something uh, behind that, yeah, I use science fic- science fiction metaphors frequently, actually, in my teaching, plus scientific language and philosophical language and poetry, things like that. But sci- sci- sci-fi. I find it is because it's using science that we know and through imagination to go beyond the possible science. You know, and, that, and some of it turns out to be science at some point. A new invention can be, you know, come out of it. But also, it is common. People know it, they can relate to the world, you know, the, the encounter, first encounter of the third kind. In that people got exposed to that term, which has been used by sci-fi and in science too. You know the different ways of knowing something. You know, third, you know, third kind mean a direct encounter. You're you're really seeing the person. You're seeing the truth. You're feeling them. You're shaking hand with them. There's more uh, direct, immediate, and uh, personal contact with uh, whatever truth we are encountering. So yes, truth can you can be first kind, which is a hearsay, second kind, which is you have an intimation of it, you know, or you hear somebody talking, expressing it. The third kind, you yourself have the experience of it. And there are many spiritual truths that can be experienced in the third kind. The third kind basically means immediate direct. That's how it is used in science fiction, and that's how I'm using it here. Just did, to I have help, to ask, did you see the film people, Arrival? Yeah. Oh, yes, I've seen Arrival, yes. It, it, I, I, I really enjoyed the way in which that, because I'm fascinated by the moment of encounter. You use the word encounter of the third kind, yeah. where the yeah. otherness appears, there's some kind of connection. You have to build an interface. You have to change your mind in order to kind of meet, meet the phenomenon halfway. And to me, that's one of my favorite moments in, in science fiction is when the other, uh, when there's an encounter with the other, which seems to, does seem to shed some light, or at least on an aspect 
of of spiritual experience because at least sometimes it seems like the most natural thing in the world. Oh, I I've, I've always been loving. I'm now I'm I'm with my you know, the love for the universe, but sometimes what comes in is, is an other, is something that is not yeah. my little pit, well, petty yeah. ego. Well, knowing true nature or, or the nature of our spirit, uh, or the nature of our consciousness, is something that most people don't know. When they experience it, it is like an other, because we identify with ourselves in a normal, ordinary way, and when we experience that presence, the luminous, illuminating presence, it's different and other than how we've taken ourselves to be, how we've taken our consciousness to be. So it's good to recognize, important to recognize that. And I, in my book, I make a, a whole chapter about it, a whole chapter, because I want to make a point that it's important to recognize the spiritual nature as different from our, from the our the element of our ordinary experience. First, to see its differentness before we be, realize it is what we are. See, before we see our unity with it. Yeah, that makes that that makes a great deal of sense. It's the, it, the it's like the encounter opens up into a more what inner inner recognition. But one one of the things I I. Uh, uh, you've, you've already mentioned here is is that there's many different t- types of experiences, many different sides of of spirituality. And one of the things that I, I really note about your presentation um, of uh, of the Diamond Method is it, it's radically open to all of these different domains. You know, most spiritual groups and spiritual teachings. Um, they focus on a, on a single truth, let's say non-dualism. All is one. All is ultimately unity consciousness. If, if you're in dualism, you're missing the boat. We, let's get to the non-dual. There's a lot of people who are, who are into that, uh, that approach. And, whereas you say, yes, non-dualism is part of, of, what, of what, what one can experience. It's part of the truth of one's experience. But so, too, is dualism. And so, too, is the view where both dualism and non-dualism are true. So I get this sense in your work of this sort of constant opening up to multiple dimensions, multiple manifestations. And, and in your new book, you even talk about the sort of non-hierarchical approach to the path. That means there's not necessarily a linear way from A to B, or there's not necessarily a top of the mountain. There's many mountain peaks, or to use that analogy. Yeah. Is that something that's always been true for your approach? Did it always seem obvious to you that there was this multidimensional, dynamic, open-ended aspect of the, of the, of the mean, path, the, or did you come the, to it? Yeah, the way this teaching developed always has, has had an open-endedness. In fact, it's force itself, the open-ended, because I'll come to some place and say, oh, that's it. And I stay in it for a while, a few years, and then some, it changes. And it changes times that finally I have to acknowledge that it is, you know, it's folly to take one state and condition and say that's the end. So open-endedness became an important principle of the teaching. And I think part of it is because uh, we are in our uh, times exposed to all, almost all teachings. They're all around. We uh, teachers, teaching, literature. So I'm, I'm have the exposure to all of those. 
and I explored them, some of them some detail, and, and, and practiced them and find out they are true. And then finding out that they're different from each other, but each one of them says they are the truth. So, you know, that's probably part of the stimulus that allowed the teaching that approach to develop in such a way to have what I call the view of totality, which bring in a non-hierarchical view, which shows that, yes, there are many truths, or in each teaching can sort of specialize, become good and understanding a, a fundamental truth about spirituality and spiritual universe. But the other teaching also has some other things they, they know, that the first teaching doesn't completely uh, know or emphasize. And I found that interesting, fascinating. And so I find that many of the fundamental teachings are true are and are liberating if one realizes their truth. But there are many of those truths. There are many ways of getting liberated. And I like the liberation where one is open to experience different kinds of liberation and different kinds of awakenings, which I think is potential for a human being in general, although some people might settle with one path or one truth, and that's enough for them. It gives them fulfillment. It's great. But the way think- that approach happened is... It is a force in its own, and it's not under my control. It's opened my mind and my conscience and others to see that, that, that the truth of spirit is dynamic and creative, and it is constantly creative, and it never reveals everything about itself because it's infinite. Its secrets are infinite, and it cannot call, all be revealed, cannot all be known by one person. A person can be open to the potential, but there is infinity of it. Do, do you, does that teaching, do you think, pose difficulties for people who are, let's say, just sort of beginning to, to explore uh, these topics or to, to move into, you know, they start a meditation practice, they're starting to think about, you know, that there's some world beyond the, the world of the, of the ego, they're, you know, exploring uh, different teachings, and then you go, oh, wait, it's the view of totality. This is everything is possible. There's all these different dimensions. It's like, ah, how do you navigate? And, and I ask that not just in terms of, uh, of specific uh, – I ask that more in terms of how you, as someone who is cr- constructing an ongoing teaching that has a school, that has students all over the world, many groups, um, how these, this openness plays itself out in people's individual uh, progress. I think it can be for uh, somebody who's beginning, beginning a practice, it could be challenging to hear of uh, a view of totality because it might make them doubt or, or wonder about their commitment to what they're doing. But that is not the intention, really, of the teaching. Uh, the idea is that yet you should commit and learn. You learn as much as you can. But if you know something about the view of totality, about that openness, it might make the path lighter, that it is true and it, you need to commit yourself. But, but, but there is a lightheartedness about it. You don't need to be stoic or uh, orthodox or 
you know, rigid in your view about reality. Yes, there's many of you, but this is the one I want to learn. You know, that's the one I'm into. That's what, what speaks to me, and that's what I'm learning. I think it's important. I want to commit themselves that way. That not lightness to, be, to me is to so key. You know, many, it's so interesting. Um, uh, and was that something that for you was just kind of part of your personality, part of your temperament? Uh, or was it something that you kind of came to after a period maybe when you were younger where you were more obsessive or, uh, uh, you know, orthodox about certain ideas or very, very absolutist about certain things? Or did it always sort of seem obvious to you that that kind of lightness um, uh, was, well, was an Im- important part of the path? It's neither of those. I was, you know, so similar to many, most people, which is, I thought I will, you know, engage a spiritual path and uh, practice, and I will get to some kind of awakening and enlightenment, because everybody talked about it, and, I've, and many people talk about, well, it's the same thing. So I thought, just like everybody else, you get awakened, you, you find the truth, and that. So it was more of a, a naivete at that time, or... Uh, I was young, let's say, and um, so I, I I I did that. I, I did like what everybody else did, and then my experience itself is what opened up in a, in a certain way that uh, I think because I stayed long enough and like non-dual and all that. And after a while, what do you do in the non-dual? What happens? Do you create an undual and stays like this? And then I found out that no, realized or awakened individuals have discoveries. They have a lot of discoveries. Their life, true life, is a life of discovery. And you don't you don't just discover the same truth. You discover many facets, many dimensions, many forms that this truth can take, which is makes life uh, interesting experience interesting um you call the the new book the Al- the alchemy of freedom yeah. um what is it about alchemy that attracts you it's an interesting esoteric practice it's associated with you know turning lead into gold uh it has a deep yeah. esoteric side uh, what 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 was it about the metaphors of of alchemy or the kind yeah. of mind frame of alchemy that seemed appropriate for uh for your teachings now yeah, I was going to call my book The Philosopher's Stone. And, uh, you know, Shambhala, my publisher, thought that not a good idea because it's sort of like title of movies and stuff like that and also... But the idea here is, so we changed it to Alchemy Freedom, which is, you know, a good title. But the idea is to focus on two things, two concepts that I borrow from al- Alchemy. One of them is the Philosopher's Stone, and the other one is what they call the Red Sulfur. And the uh, Philosopher's Stone, according to the alchemists, that if you find the Philosopher's Stone, they're always worth looking for. If you find it, it is the key to the secrets of existence. And in this book, I'm, I'm trying to say it is possible to find the key to the secrets of existence. And that the philosopher's stone is nothing but the true nature of our being, the true nature of our spirit. If we find it, 
it is a kind of uh, truth, kind of light, light, uh, kind of mystery that has nature of illuminating any area, anything we inquire into. So anything we inquire into, it can reveal its secrets because this uh, philosopher's stone or the true nature, its nature is, it's, it's a, it, it is pure illumination, it is always illuminating, and it is, and appears in our experience as a discovery and insight and a new form of, of experience. So that's one of the terms I use, the philosopher's stone. I, I use it to refer to the true nature of being, the true nature of consciousness, the true nature of spirit. And how mysterious it is in the book I get into, how you cannot completely encapsulate with a definition, with a sentence or two, because there are many ways of experiencing it. And that is... Um, so when you say finding it, it doesn't mean you experience a certain condition or you see, see something and that's it. You found the philosopher's stone. The philosopher's stone is an alive, living, dynamic kind of truth. And then the other concept that is very important in, the, in this uh, book is that I talk about uh, red sulfur, which uh, refers to uh, what's called the alchemical activation, uh, which I refer to in the book as essential activation, which is the activation of the dynamism of consciousness. So the acti this activation is more than just awakening or experience of enlightenment. It means that our consciousness, our spiritual nature is activated, its dynamism becomes unstoppable, and it is free. And that freedom, that activation, make it possible for us to move from one kind of experience to another, from one kind of discovery to another. Because, you know, the, the red sulfur, which is uh, refers to this, uh, to the to uh, the philosopher's stone, uh, activating the consciousness is. It's, an, it's a rare thing. I wanted to show people that it's possible. It is rare. It's more rare than having experience of awakening or enlightenment or non-duality or anything like that because, I mean, our being is a fire. It is turned on. It's like the faucet turned on. It can't be stopped. And it keeps going. And it's not going with the same truth over and over again. It's going by revealing many nuggets of truth, many pearls of wisdom or many facets of reality. And, uh, and I'm not saying that you're going to have 20 of those a day. It's more like, you know, in my, my life, like every few weeks or a few uh, days or sometime a year or so, I'm in a different state, a different kind of realization. In time, they become all available and, you know, it could go move through some of them the same day, but it, it took a while to learn about each one of them, because some of them might take a few days, some of them take a year or two to really know the in and out of it. So the alchemical uh, activation 
I, I'm bringing here you know, the, uh, a new concept, well, not new, but a concept that is not common these days. And, uh, and by using it, you can see that that activity can bring the non-dual and we can go to something different than the non-dual, which is awakening still, even though the non-dual is, is awakening. So yes, I, I really appreciate yeah. the the pluralism yeah. of that vision. Even if it if it's ultimately folded into this this view of totality, uh, it seems uh, uh, very vital, and also is it's a very uh, powerful articulation of your own experience, since obviously you're coming from your own uh, very rich experience inside and outside of of traditions, and particularly this movement uh, between them. And uh, you know, I I, uh, I really appreciate you you putting yeah, that uh, and, out and, there. And it is really appropriate for our time, because really, if you have that kind of openness, that kind of freedom, where you don't need to take in a perspective of a certain state or a certain realization and say that's the truth, if you, don't, you have that freedom, you are in some sense protected from fundamentalism. You, don't, you, don't, you can't become fundamentalist. If you take one truth, say that's the truth. And other people, what they say is not exactly it. That's the beginning of fundamentalism. That's how fundamentalism starts, by saying, I got it, the other people don't have it, and this is the truth. And we see, seeing the fundamentalism of our era and how it's spreading in many ways, I think it's good we have teachings that sort of uh, undercut that tendency to a fundamentalism. Oh, absolutely. And of course, we not only have the, the fundamentalism represented, let's say, in you know, Islamic Jihad, but the growing sort of reactionary movements inside the West, inside Europe, inside the United States, where they're, again, once again, no, these are absolute truths, we, we, we need to stick by them, and we're, we're you know, a rejection of pluralistic modern uh, society in many ways. Um, and because there's so much obviously going on politically and so many people are freaked out, I'm sure you see it in the eyes of your students, et cetera. I would just yeah, love to hear I from you, you know, both both from a spiritual point of view, but also just as someone from Kuwait who's been in America for a long time, how yeah. you see uh, people responding to this this situation that seems so much more urgent and, and, well, and scary. Well, people are concerned. Some are actually scared. Uh, I see a lot of fear, a lot of concern. Uh, some people, of course, excited and happy about it because they think finally their views being seen. Some people are concerned and they're saying, well, I think I'm changing in a way that will make things worse. And so uh, we are in a situation, a new situation, I think, in this country and the Western world where many uh, forces or uh, or voices that have been quiet are ma now on the surface. They're coming out. And so the whole nation has to contend with this, those differences, those divisions. I don't think it's part of it as a new development. Part of it, I think, it's always been there, and now it's becoming more explicit. And uh, it's not easy to come to terms with it. Some people are disoriented, afraid of disruption, fear that they're going to lose their democracy and stuff like that. Uh, I, I see all that happening, and it is a concern. That I, in our teaching, we try to help. We allow 
possibly to explore, to inquire into the situation, see where you stand, how you're feeling, what are your fears about, what is realistic about it, what's not realistic, and if there is something real, what you can do about it, can you do it by yourself, do you need to, you know, join our organization or something. We, we, we inquire into all these things. Because in our school, because it's large and international, there are people in various parts of the spectrum, political and religious spectrum. So we're open to students to be where they are, but we try to help them see what is the truth for them and see what is their truth and to use universal truth to reflect on their personal truth so that their personal truth doesn't stay just an encapsulated belief. That's uh, the good good teachings for the for the day. We have about ten minutes left, and I had uh, one yeah. other question that doesn't quite relate to what you were just saying, uh, but it is in the sense that I think that one of the things that's happening now, politically, psychologically, et cetera, is just the the full consequences of uh, of the internet and of digital communication has really changed the way in which truth works, the way in which people organize, the way in which uh, reality itself as a social construct gets uh, you know changed and and filtered and mediated. You know, it's part of the the scariness and the novelty of our moment has to do with our communications. And one thing that I, that I I couldn't help but notice is that you know in recent over the last year or so, that the the Ridwan School has come out more online. You know, you're doing some online courses, yeah. uh, and there's sort of more of a sense of like, okay, the internet is the place where people are. Uh, let's go and talk to them. And I I would just I can only imagine that that's a very interesting experience because traditionally you guys have not advertised. You've grown organically. It's not been a big, right. you know, advertised kind of thing. And yet you're in this sort of world. Uh, which, with its own very peculiar and very overwhelming kind of uh, intensity. So I just have to hear sort of your reactions. No kidding. It's overwhelming. I mean, the Internet and the new media and the new technology is a, is a new revolution, actually, just like the Industrial Revolution. And it has its pros and cons. And, um, it's not, uh, it's a new, in some sense, a neutral thing. But people are not really neutral. They could use it for good or for bad, which we see both. You know, so like when they call social media, well, how social is it really? Social media people put on the, are they view it, are they really talking? Are they making contact with each other? So at first, of course, we did actually online through Conscious2 was to explore the online uh, communication, the media, and the technology. What is its effect, and how can we use it in a way that can further our humanness and humanity instead of disconnecting us from our humanity and from each other? Because many people who, uh, who believe they are engaged in social media, they don't have social skills. They don't develop the true social skill that require you to really, really be talking with somebody and see the cues in their body and their voice and all of that and respond, you know, in, a, in a, an empathic, you know, attuned way. Social media doesn't provide that. It, it provides sort of a, a superficial way of connect, which is good as a beginning. But if people are just satisfied with that, they will not develop. And that, that could be a danger, actually, for the whole civilization. So 
So the way we do it, we are doing online courses, but the way I look at it is that we don't really know what is the potential for doing for, for, for of the internet for spiritual teaching. Many teachers, you know, teaching are putting their teaching on online. Diamond approach. I don't know how much of it we could put online. We could do something. We, we're doing something with us, our introductory thing. I don't know how deep we could go just online without the human contact, without encounter with a third kind with a teacher. Yeah, it gets in that issue of yeah. the, the, the physics of, of transmission and how much yeah. the inquiry process requires, you know, just, as you say, being in the presence of somebody else's body, picking up their cues, reading, creating a space that, you, that we feel energetically because we're in physical contact. But it's great. You're right. It's the, the story. We don't know, right? You don't we know. don't know. I mean, there is this possible transmission online. I mean, when I listen to video to some teachers I respect, I get transmission from it. It's possible to get transmission from video, but not everybody can. Somebody who's just learning, I don't know if they can get it without... Uh, they could get some you know, pointers about practice, about reality, but I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying we're exploring the potential. We don't really know. How, how far can spiritual teaching utilize internet yeah. what what i'm curious what other issues you're dealing with as the school i mean as i said at the beginning one of the things that i admire about the teaching is the way that it has manifested in a, a very healthy organization uh that deals with some of the issues that come up around spiritual teaching i think in, in pretty healthy ways at the same time, time's going forward, people are aging, the world's changing, you know, people's needs and demands are changing. Um, what are some of the other issues that you see as you think about how this teaching can continue to ignite uh, uh, people? Well, so one of the things we are actually working with in our organization, our school, is how this teaching going to happen in the future. Who's going to carry it? Who's going to communicate it? What form that's going to be? What organization and legal structure need to be set up to support its ongoing uh, aliveness? Because I wanted to go f further forward, but alive, not become fossilized, you know, encapsulated into a religion. I want it to be a living teaching with the living teachers who actually communicate. So we're I'm doing great deal of work on training teachers and make, training them as well as possible and trying to train younger people so that they will be able to carry the teaching forward. And also we're exploring how to reach younger people, millennials and younger people, and how they use technology and how to communicate with them, sometimes technology, but also you know, ways to find out how to communicate with the new generation so that the, they will have the benefit of understanding what uh, spirituality is all about, true spirituality is about. It's not just what they see in a video or, or hear or, you know, online. So that is really one of the edges we're working with in the school, is the future. How, how is this teaching going to go in the future? Because we feel the responsibility for the teaching itself, to continue, 
and for the people who 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 can benefit from it. So we're trying to do as best as we can to train our people, create the structures and the vehicles for it to be given out and to learn how to reach the different kind of people and the younger people especially. Because I, I, I understand it's different. Each generation is different. And people think differently, do think differently. So we're sort of, we are in process of finding out how to make the transition, not, not just address the teaching to people my age, but to people who, and the age I was when I started, you know, when I was in my 20s. And uh, that's not an, an easy thing because, you know, there are many stereotypes, but, you know, stereotypes don't say the whole thing. But So we're learning and we're exploring and we're trying to set up ways both online and in person that will so uh, to carry the illuminating power of this teaching forward into newer generation. That is one of our challenges. Yes, yes, indeed, we do face we do face some challenges, and some of them are are spiritual, and some of them are very very, very, very pragmatic. Yeah, uh, just just a couple. Uh, just have a, a minute or two left, so just yeah. I, I'd love to hear you kind of reflect yeah. on on what you sense is coming, what 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 the big challenges are. Yeah, well, the, as I said, the challenges of the future. For so when I'm talking to younger people, turn out time is a big thing for them. People don't have time. I told him, well, when I was 20, we had lo- everybody had lots of time. We sit around, hang out, talk, and stuff. Now people are busy. They're either busy at work, they have to have several jobs, people barely surviving, and also they're not doing that. They're busy with their, uh, you know, technology, with their uh, iPads, or you know, communicating online. People don't have time. My concern, actually is that in a generation or two, people will forget that there's such a thing called leisure, that you have time when nothing needs to be done. That will be lost to the human consciousness. And I think that will be a big loss, because spirituality arises in leisure, when your mind is not engaged with something else. Well, I think we're going to have to uh, on this on this note about time and leisure. I, I note that the time is out for us, so uh, we'll have to wrap it up here. Hamid, thanks so much for uh, for talking with me on Expanding Mind, and, and thanks, Eric, for the opportunity. Very, very good. All right, folks. Uh, well, until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>